You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Subro on the Go. We have another episode for you today, and we've got two very special guests with us. Our first guest is Howard Macon, chair of the Western Region of our Subrogation Department. Um, and he's going to be here today along with uh, our partner, David Briscoe, also um, who moderates the podcast with me to talk on the topic of wildfires. Howard has been the lead counsel for the subrogation industry in pretty much every major wildfire case in California, representing something like over 60 carriers in the major California wildfires. He's a managing partner of our Los Angeles office. He has extensive experience litigating tort cases domestically and internationally, most recently in the United Kingdom and South Korea, and he was recently selected by Best Magazine for its 2020-2021 Best Lawyers in America for his work on wildfire cases. David Briscoe is equally as accomplished, um, but I will give a more briefer introduction to my colleague because you guys are all familiar with him from prior episodes of the podcast. David is based in our San Diego office. He also works hand-in-hand with Howard um, on these wildfire cases. These guys are like your Howard Stark and Peter Parker Batman duo. Um, I would I would throw a, a Batman and Robin reference, but um, I'm more of a Marvel fan myself, so I'll go with Howard Stark and Spider-Man. So guys, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Doing well. Thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate it, Joe and David. I, uh, I'm flattered, but I take it that Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, and or Malcolm Gladwell weren't available today, so I guess I'm a good substitute. Yeah, yeah, so we're, we're happy to have you, both of you guys. Uh, David, as always, you know, my partner in crime on the West Coast while I'm here on the East Coast in Florida. So guys, today we're here talking about wildfires. So let, let me start off by asking, cause, because I don't handle a lot of these cases like you guys do. But what's the difference with a fire investigation and a wildfire case? Why is it different? I mean, I'm guessing there's some logistical and scope concerns. Um, there I'll are. throw it open. Go ahead. Yeah, there are, Joe. Um, I'll take it first, and then and David can certainly weigh in with his opinions. But to me, the fire investigation for a wildfire is just a much bigger onion. There are a lot more layers involved. Uh, you reference scope. You know, we're talking about a large number of parties. We're talking about a significant number of eyewitnesses. Um, we're talking about a much, much larger geographic area with respect to scene size, and you know, getting a lot of moving parts in a very short period of time to that scene uh, to make sure that we are documenting, securing evidence, speaking to the right people, etc. You know, from a a legal standpoint, it's different in that when we process these wildland fires, uh, there are different resources and different codes that are applicable. Um, You know, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is the Guide to Wildland Fire Origin and Cause Determination, which is published by the National Wildfire Coordinating Group, which we fondly refer to as NWCG and specifically um, their protocol set forth in PMS 412. So lots of different uh, uh, layers to the onion, many more layers to the onion, 
Um, at the end of the day, it's still processing the fire scene. It's just much bigger. Right. That, and that is the theme, really, is that it's, it's just bigger and there's so much more work that goes into these uh, cases. We could, we were talking about, you know, what do we talk about if we're going to do a wildfire podcast? You know, we could talk all day about this. Um, this topic. And so, you know, for our sub on the go, we're trying to keep these under 20 minutes. Uh, you know, we, we thought we'd focus really in on a smaller section of what's going on early on. What kind of data are we gathering while we, um, uh, while we investigate a fire early on? There's so much that goes on in the litigation front, you know, uh, 50 to 100 depositions if you're in a, uh, a large wildfire um, case. But, but before we get to the litigation phase, what are we doing at the infancy of a case? Because we all know several is so important at the beginning. Um, so what are we doing early on to gather data? It's not meant to be all-inclusive. We've only got 20 minutes here to talk. So we're going to just, you know, um, try to paint a picture to give everybody a sense for how much um, work really goes into these things at the infancy of a case. Well, let me let me ask, because that, that brings up a question I had. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm sitting back as an observer, hearing what you do at the fire scene. But what are you guys doing in tandem um, before you get to the scene? Is that maybe a good place to start? Yeah, we could start there. Um, there, there are a lot of moving parts, Joe. Uh, when we get notice of a fire, it's generally uh, through social media or the news or a client, but more so the first two, uh, where we're actually following it live. And when we see what appears to us as uh, a fire that has the potential to turn into something much larger and cause significant property damage, uh, we start mobilizing our group uh, within Cozen O'Connor and the experts that we, you know, usually retain on a repetitive basis. And we make sure that we're locking them up uh, and making sure that uh, they have no conflicts and they haven't been retained. Uh, by other folks involved in wildfires. So at the get-go, you know, we spend a good bit of time monitoring and having people on the ready uh, to mobilize and get them to the scene. And concurrently, uh, we are putting together alerts or white papers, and we are advising our clients that, hey, we have a fire, here's the location, here are the relevant zip codes, Here's the information that we have to date. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we're looking for any information from public sources that we can ascertain. We use social media quite a bit to try and um, download photos and videos that people are uploading early on. So we have um, really good uh, databases of information uh, that candidly may not be available a week, a month, or a year or two down the line. And we look to uh, utility filings with, uh, in this case, the California Public Utilities Commission, where they're required to file an incident report, so we're getting information um, specific to a utility uh, that may be involved in the start of the fire. Um, and, you know, if we have that information and, and we know that, you know, there's a utility in a specific area and they've filed something indicating that their equipment may be involved, uh, we're getting notice letters out to those utility entities and we are telling them to preserve evidence, uh, we're telling them that we want scene access, and we're telling them that we want a wide range of documentation that relates to the specific circuit that's involved 
uh, or potentially involved with the start of the fire. It sounds like uh, it sounds like you guys are doing much more real time investigation, if I can use that phrase, as opposed to looking back. We are, uh, you know, it, it's key, and, and David and I joke about this quite often when we speak um, at events. Uh, I tell people repeatedly, evidence has a tendency to grow legs in the first 24 hours, so it is crucial, especially in these large wildfire cases where you are dealing with such a large area uh, of origin, uh, a general area of origin, that you know you really need to mobilize people concurrently with the event in order to secure any evidence that you can get and I'm not just talking about physical evidence that you could pick up and put in a truck and take somewhere I'm talking about speaking to eyewitnesses I'm talking about um, security camera videos I'm talking about witness interviews you know one of the things that we've learned over the years is that you know uh, you can capture an event that completely um, disappears within 24 hours and I'll give you an example um, there was a fire that happened in California uh, and it involved some hot embers that were coming off the back of a truck uh, and it was captured entirely by a ring camera the whole video of the event was captured by a ring camera and you know those recordings don't last forever it just depends on the settings that are there so that video very well could have disappeared, you know, 24, 48 hours after the event if it wasn't secured. So we're moving quickly and we're moving a lot of parts quickly and we're getting boots on the ground in order to prevent evidence from disappearing that, you know, may become crucial two, three, four years yeah. down the line. And that's the beauty of the world, you know, we live in now with the technology is there's so much data out there to help us with these investigations. These are complicated scenes. And so what we're doing, Howard started talking about examples of that, we're grabbing data from so many different sources. And that's one thing we wanted to spend some time talking about today is what are those sources of data we can, we can grab from, um, you know, to help really help our experts when they refine uh, the area of origin to a smaller area for their investigation. One of those things, I want, a piece of data I want to point out is the wildfire alert videos, which is uh, a really neat, a growing uh, uh, organization. It's alertwildfire.org, and it's um, it was created by three universities out here out west, uh, University of Reno, University of California, San Diego, and University of Oregon, and they have uh, hundreds. Their goal is to reach 1,000 cameras by next year on the um, five western states, and these cameras out um, uh, usually on mountainsides and hillsides um, are constantly running uh, as, as alert cameras. You can go onto their website and click on any camera at any time and, and watch the live video feed. And then when a fire occurs, the cameras are extremely helpful because depending on, because there's so many cameras, you will be able to find the camera closest to the fire when it started. And it helps you to narrow down where did that first, you know, first glow of a fire occur? Where did you first see smoke? Um, it helps the firemen, of course, when in fighting the fire to see how big it is and they can scale resources. But it's a great resource for us to um, start seeing what's going on. As, as one example, you know, we had a wildfire alert video uh, show us um, the, the arc flash that we believe caused the fire, but it showed us that arc flash on video live. And then it shows um, power going out in the area, just as we would expect when you have a, a major electrical event. And then shortly right after the arc flash and the power going out, we see the glow of a fire as that fire starts to, to glow and is visible by the camera. Sometimes the camera is a quarter mile away, sometimes it's several miles away, but regardless, it's a, it's a valuable data point for us. 
What about some free tools? I think you know, Dave, I'm a big proponent of trying to get as much video and photos related to a loss. Are there some free tools out there that Google has or any other sources? Yeah, I think Howard has a good example, too. I mean, social media is big, right? We're on, I mean, you know, Twitter, Flickr, uh, you know, Facebook. I mean, all these sites that people post videos of the fire early on, they could be a neighbor or they could just be down the street from a fire. And what do they do when they see it? They take a video of it and show, you know, the fire in its early stages. But I, And Howard has a good example of, of some good social media evidence used in the case. Yeah, we have dynamic video from, you know, the Northern California uh, San Bruno pipeline explosion. Um, I mean, just minutes after it occurred. And, and it's, it's interesting to see how people respond to certain things. Um, that was a massive fire that was occurring in the middle of the street. And, uh, you know, you heard all different types of theories being thrown out by people walking. Somebody thought it was a plane crash. Somebody thought it was a house fire. Um, but the video itself, you know, told a different story. It was in the middle of a street. Um, it may not have been helpful from the standpoint of, you know, why the fire occurred, but it showed us things like wind direction, intensity of fire along those lines. Um, with respect to what David's referencing, um, we used in a case um, a site called Flickr, and we had a fire that occurred uh, in Malibu Canyon years ago where an anchor that was supporting a utility pole came out of the ground and in turn this caused the utility pole to actually come down and the conductors to start uh, the Malibu Canyon wildfire. And what we looked for and were able to find on Flickr were high definition photos of the specific pole that came out of the ground and the anchoring system for it. And we used that high-definition photo that somebody randomly took uh, because they just like taking photos in Malibu Canyon. But we used that photo in the majority of the depositions uh, to show why the anchoring was improper and ultimately why it caused... Uh, yeah, that's a great fire. example because, you know, I always use the example of a puzzle, right? Puzzles are fun to build because you have a picture in front of you on the box of what the puzzle is supposed to look like. If you didn't have a picture of what the puzzle is supposed to look like, it'd be a disaster to try to put a puzzle together. And so these images of what an area of origin looked like before the fire become so critical. Um, and we'll see this in some of the utility cases with, with uh, a vegetation management issue where we think a, a tree branch would have uh, um, hit, a, hit a line and caused a fire. You know, Google Earth and Google Street View are great sources of information because you can see a timeline um, of an area and you can see the history of what the vegetation looked like. Was it, you know, encroaching too close to the um, power line or hanging over it historically? Um, and so gr great data to help us paint a picture as to what the puzzle is supposed to look like. Yeah, and I'd also tell people to use, um, th there's a website, CAL FIRE. Uh, they're the uh, investigating entity on a number of these uh, large California wildfires. They are the Department of Forestry and Fire Protection in the state of California. And they have an, uh, an entire section related to incidents. And you can receive updated information, um, you know, often uh, every couple of hours while fire is burning. So. Um, fire.ca.gov is also an excellent resource for yeah. fire information. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys are, are out there like digital detectives, you know, sifting through. I mean, 
cameras are ubiquitous now, whether they are ring cameras, you know, individual smartphones or, or other security devices. So it seems like you guys have really roadmapped how to go out and and sift through right. all and, of this and, and collect. Well, we want to. We want We should spend some time on that note, talking about the the, uh, the how it's relevant to the timeline. So the individual witness pictures are so critical to establish a timeline of where the fire is at a particular given point in time. And to get that data, we have to usually get the actual raw data from the witness to get the metadata to actually tell, which so the phone will tell us exactly what time the witness took the picture. Um, that becomes critical. If we're, we're, for example, if we argue that the fire started at, you know, nine o'clock and the witness has a, you know, picture of, uh, um, uh, the fire at 9.15, you know, and per her metadata, then we can, you know, start establishing that's the location where the fire was 15 minutes after it started. Um, and so give you one example, you know, we had a, a, just the case where a witness to a major fire um, took some photographs and her metadata had the, had the uh, um, uh, showed her picture was taken about 20 minutes after the fire started. But it's often difficult because that usually is, that's more accurate than the witness's actual memory. Um, because photos were fantastic because the photo placed the fire right where we wanted it um, and the actual uh, area where the defense said the fire started wasn't on fire yet so we were able to show look here 15 20 minutes after the fire started your area of origin defense is not on fire yet um, so a key piece of evidence but the witness she thought that you know she took the photograph around eight o'clock when the, when she really took it at about 9 20 and she thought, you know, because her favorite show ended and she walked her dog outside after her favorite show ended. I don't remember the show, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with Joe's favorite. We'll say it was American Idol. So she thinks American Idol ends at, at 8 o'clock. That's not the favorite show? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, so the voice, no, voice it's ends the and voice. she thinks it's 8 o'clock. And she goes outside and, and sees the fire and takes a picture. So for her recollection, it's 8 o'clock. But we know that's not accurate and not helpful if we're just going on her personal recollection. Now that we have the metadata... Um, with today's technology, we can say, no, this is the exact point in time you took the photograph. Very helpful to our timeline. And, and beyond that, Joe, with respect to metadata, um, it's not just a question of timing. Uh, metadata also allows us to put ourselves at the actual coordinates where the photograph was taken. And that becomes extremely important later down the line when our photogrammetry and LIDAR experts are trying to stitch together photographs and video from multiple sources that can give us an overall view of an area where a fire may have started in an exact moment in time. So when we get these losses, we have photogrammetry and LIDAR, LIDAR for those who don't know is light, um, detection and ranging technology that uses pulse light uh, to essentially recreate a, a digital version of a scene and we send them out and they document the scene and it's as is as close to the date of the fire as possible and we can then take that raw information and using photographs from witnesses videos from witnesses uh, the metadata from when they uh, took a photo or video and where they were at that moment in time and we can stitch it all together and then we can show a trier of fact what it looked like if you were staring at the scene at that moment in time. So you know you said something earlier Joe you said you're gathering all useful information. 
we're gathering all information because candidly we're not sure at that point in time what's useful and what's not and David can tell you I mean just minuscule things about a tree branch that's broken uh, in a photograph you know versus it wasn't broken in a photograph before that may tell us what came down and contacted a power line but we don't know at that point in time that it's that specific branch that broke you know, it's going back and it's looking at photos and then things become useful and relevant when you start trying to piece yeah, together. Yeah, nailed it. I mean, that we're gathering hurt. all data. It becomes, you know, when there's a wildfire, we drop everything. It's all hands on deck. Let's get as much information and data as we can um, for our experts because we don't know what's going to be relevant or not. You know, and we could spend all day talking about, you know, you, you can see from this example, we could spend all day talking about this. We just wanted to spend some time giving a little highlight as to the different types of information that we're trying to grab early on in the investigation. Um, but it doesn't even kind of scratch the surface as to, you know, the other parts that are going on, the, the, the six or seven types of experts that we're sending out to a scene, and then the, the you know, litigation work, work we're doing once the case gets going in litigation. But we hopefully this is kind of shares a little um, snapshot as to you know how intense these are early on in terms of a data gathering process. Yeah, I think you guys have given a really great overview so far of everything. And just, just for the record, um, unfortunately, in the pandemic, my favorite TV channel has become HCTV, <laughs> and that's because that's what my wife watches. So I haven't had a chance to watch The Voice. Um, I didn't want our <laughs> listeners to think otherwise. Um, but it's, all of this is really great stuff, guys, and I think you've really given us a good window into how complex these cases are and how much time and energy you have to put into them and, and how important I think the closing note about collecting all information is a really good one. Um, I want to thank you guys. Is there anything else you guys want to add before we close it out? But uh, thanks again. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, David. Really appreciate you guys joining us today. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, you know, I'd close with this. Uh, it's a Herculean task to handle these wildfires. But having a great team in place, and that's within the firm, that's experts, and candidly, you know, and honestly, that's within the industry, uh, is the key to successfully litigating these and ultimately getting great results. You know, we use teams of experts that are wildfire origin and cause specific. Uh, we use electrical engineers, we use metallurgists, we use forensic arborists, forensic meteorologists, photogrammetrists, LIDAR experts, and we go to the scenes ourselves. You know, I mean, it's crucial for us to put boots on the ground. Um, you know, David and I hiked around in Northern California after the 2017 fires to really understand what we were looking at and I can't explain to you how crucial that is when you're deposing someone two, three years down the line and you're questioning them about a specific area that you've seen and you have a working knowledge of because you were there versus a defense attorney who may be coming in six, eight months after the fact and they're looking at photographs and they're trying to piece it all together. Um, so I would leave you with it's important to be reactive uh, not only as a client who may have a wildfire loss but you know as a law firm handling wildfires and 
you know, jumping on the scene examination processing of a fire as soon as you can. Uh, otherwise, you know, there will be lost Perfect. opportunities. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, it's, it's, you know, just uh, a bigger stage of what we preach on the traditional losses, getting to the scene as soon as possible and investigating a loss in the first 24, 48 hours is what makes or breaks subro, and it's just uh, an even bigger scale on the wildfire front. So this was great. I appreciate both of your time talking about this today. Yeah, thank you, Howard. Thank you, Dave. Um, you definitely, I think, impressed upon us how, how these are a little bit more magnified in terms of the procedures that you have to follow. And I think Howard's closing note was a really good one. Um, so thanks, guys. Uh, I appreciate you jumping on. And for anybody listening, if you ever have any questions regarding these cases, you can feel free to reach out to Howard or David. Um, you can get their contact information on our website, or you can contact um, my link, and I'll put you in touch with them. And uh, thanks again, guys. And, and for those of you listening, we hope thanks, you guys. continue to listen to future episodes. Thank thanks. you, Joe. Thank you, David. Thanks.